This conference will now be recorded. Hi, good afternoon and welcome to uh, the presentation by Judge McDonald on implicit bias called Diversity, Implicit Bias on the Bench. Uh, we are very pleased to have Judge McDonald presenting for us. Uh, she's done this a few times in the last few years and it's just a great presentation because implicit bias is a subject that is topical, it's in the news, it is something that we do need to be aware of and, and to, do need to know about. Uh, Judge McDonald has been the town magistrate for the town of Marana since 2015. Uh, she was previously the prosecutor at Marana. Uh, she is a graduate of U of A undergrad and law school. She is the vice president of the Arizona Magistrates Association. Of, and Vice President of the Southern Arizona Chapter of the Arizona Women Lawyers Association. Uh, she is a member of the Limited Jurisdiction Courts Committee and the COVID-19 Workgroup, and she does present frequently for our Judicial College and the State Bar of Arizona. Uh, so we're very pleased to have Judge McDonald join us. And uh, if you have any questions, you can turn your camera on and, and ask or you can put it in the chat box. I will be monitoring the chat box. After the presentation, I am gonna distribute the PowerPoint. There will also be a CoJet certificate attached to that. You'll need to turn that CoJet certificate in uh, to Keenan DeWitt uh, to get CoJet credit for this. Uh, this may or may not be uploaded as both a podcast and a webinar. Uh, YouTube will not always allow us to upload if there's copyrighted material in it. And if that, if YouTube doesn't let me put the web version there, I'll put the web version in Hightail. The resource, uh, the materials will be in Hightail. Uh, and again, I'll also try to upload it as an audio only podcast. And so uh, I'll let Judge McDonald take it away. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I am glad to be here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and minimize my camera bar. So if there are any technical difficulties, somebody unmute and, and, and let me know that. But <clears throat> so far, so good. Um, I'm really pleased to be with you all today. It's interesting. I, I started um, teaching on diversity and implicit bias back in 2015. And at that point, it, it wasn't such a politically charged topic as it is now. It, it gives me a little more uh, anxiety teaching about it in the current political climate. But I'm really glad that you all are here and um, we can make this as interactive as you like. Um, a robust discussion would be great if you just want to sit back and take it in um, and reach out to me later. I, I am open for that. My email address is here on the first slide. Uh, also, you all will have to forgive me. I did um, make some last minute additions and subtractions to my PowerPoint. I would imagine you're all in the same boat as I am with just a really crazy courtroom calendar right now. So you'll have to forgive me if I have any typos or things that don't flow seamlessly, but I wanted to update this a little bit with some new information from the National Center for State Courts and, and some other resources for you all just in case we'd had any um, participants who had uh, done this presentation before. I, I just wanted to freshen it up a little bit for you all. So we're gonna talk first just a little bit about diversity on the bench, and um, we'll tie that back to the topic of implicit bias here 
in a few slides. Um, but first, I just wanted to touch on the current diversity on, on the bench. And most of these numbers do come from the 2020 census, or, or I'm sorry, from the 2010 census. I did check uh, as recently as last night and um, still for the 2020 census, all you can get is the apportionment numbers. You can't get anything additional. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to freshen those statistics before long as well. But um, nationally, women make up 50.2% of the American population and 35% of lawyers are women. Uh, only 27% of federal and state judges are women. 34% uh, of state trial court judges and 30% of state appellate court judges nationally are women. And in Arizona, women account for 37.2% of judges. So we do have a fairly good representation as far as 35% of lawyers are women, 37% of judges are women in Arizona, but um, obviously not coming anywhere close to the 50% the of the American population. Speaking about race, race and ethnicity, 88% uh, of lawyers were white as of 2010, 5% Black, 4% Hispanic, and 3% Asian and Pacific American. Um, so those numbers are nowhere near reflective of the diversity of the United States as a whole. Um, only 63.7% of the U.S. population was white as of the 2010 census. And um, the legal profession is even more white than um, what we call the other learned professions, things like architects, engineers, accountants, and physicians, and surgeons. The judiciary, um, nationally, 80% of trial judges are white, 7% are African-American, 5% Hispanic, Latino, and 8% identify as other, uh, whereas nationally, only 30% of the defendants who appear in front of us are white, 44% African-American, 24% Hispanic, Latino, and 2% other. Obviously in Arizona, um, we have a higher Hispanic, Latino population um, than the national average as well. So here in Arizona, 77.2% of our judiciary is white as compared to 55% of our state's population. 11% of our judiciary is Hispanic, whereas the state's population is Hispanic. Um, the only thing that we do match up on, surprisingly, and I, I've checked these statistics a number of times to make sure it's not a typo, 4.8% of our judiciary is African-American and 4.8% of the state's population is African-American as of the 2010 census. And then 1.9% um, of our judiciary is Asian Pacific Islander as compared to almost 4% of our state's population. And just over 1% of our Arizona judiciary is American Indian as it is referred to in the 2010 census as compared to 5.3% of our state's population. 1.5% of our judiciary identifies as two or more races as compared to a little more than two and a half percent of the state's population. So why is that important? Why are those numbers important? Um, it's important to bring awareness to diversity because of the topic of, of hidden bias or implicit bias. Um, these biases exist and they are impediments to increasing the diversity in our profession to include the bench. Um, the doctrine of procedural fairness has shown that people are more likely to feel that they have been treated fairly 
when the person judging them looks like them. And um, all of these things are interconnected. Uh, the hidden biases that we have impact the way we interact in society, which includes the way we as judges come to our decisions. So people's perception of procedural fairness and things being more fair when the person judging them looks like them it is really a, a fairly valid feeling that's borne out by the science. Um, there have been lots and lots of studies on the topic, um, some really good articles out there that talk about um, the learned experience of judges and how judges with different life experiences are going to judge people and situations differently. So um, all of these things are interconnected and increasing the diversity of our bench is going to increase um, the procedural fairness that our defendants are experiencing or our parties generally. So I have a, a short video clip here um, that kind of gives you an introduction to unconscious bias. Our brain is hardwired to trust what's familiar and be suspicious of what's unfamiliar. It's a basic survival instinct that's helped keep us safe for thousands of years. We unconsciously sort things into familiar versus unfamiliar, same versus different, them versus us. Here's a test. How do you feel about people who own a handgun? Don't attend church. Vote for the other candidate. Are on welfare. Don't eat meat. Have tattoos. Don't believe in marriage. Drive an electric car. Didn't go to college. Don't speak English. Curse. Are over six. Are disabled. Drive the speed Love cats. Love dogs. Can you feel your brain sorting people into groups? Was there a little them versus us happening? It can happen unconsciously. So I don't know if any of you experienced this, but the first time I watched that video, I, I could almost kind of feel the ping pong ball going back and forth in my brain. Um, there are lots of associations that we make uh, subconsciously. It's a, a physiological way of how we make decisions and um, we categorize people and things. And there will be further discussion about this uh, throughout the presentation, but I really felt like that video was a, a good kind of physiological experiment and in, in what your brain does and what you can feel your brain doing as different categories of people and things are, are brought up through the clip. So my delve into hidden bias started back when I worked for um, the legal department in Marana. One of my assignments was to serve as the police legal advisor. And um, I went to a police legal advisor conference and one of the sessions talked about hidden bias and uh, the speaker recommended this book, um, The Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. And it's a really easy read um, with a lot of interesting examples. It has the IAT tests, which we will discuss further in the presentation in it. So if you read the book on a um, tablet or on your computer, you have the ability to, to take the tests as you go through the book. This is not a paid promotion. This is just my, my own experience and, 
and reading the book. And I, I felt that it was a, a really educational experience for me to learn a bit about myself um, and definitely made me want to continue learning about this topic. So I would recommend it to you all highly. So once lodged in our minds, hidden biases can influence our behavior towards members of particular social groups but we don't know that that is happening. So that is obviously problematic, especially in our jobs as judges, because it, it's our job to make judgments about people, about their credibility, um, and as far as bench trials go, about appropriate sentences, about people's level of dangerousness, all of these things. And that decision-making can and is uh, informed through implicit bias. And if we don't take the time to do the work, uh, our implicit biases could be impacting our decisions in ways that consciously we would not want them to. So that's one of the reasons we do this um, presentation is just to give you the opportunity to learn a little bit more about how you make decisions um, because implicit or hidden bias is just that. There's explicit bias, that's different. You know, explicit prejudice, these are uh, thought processes that you're going through here that you do not know are occurring and, and therefore you can only learn about them if you choose to uh, do the work to do that. I have a, a video clip here about subconscious racial bias in children. Um, Dr. Melanie Killen is a professor of human development uh, at the University of Maryland and she has done studies on children and adolescents and I'll let the clip speak for itself. Michaela is a seventh grader at a majority white middle school. Her responses completely change depending on the race of the children in the picture. Marcy and Renee are in school together and they're in the hallway and I'd like you to tell me what you think is happening in this picture. She probably looks like she's going to steal it because Marcy's like, oh no, what happened? And he's like, hey, look, 20 bucks. <laughs> and so do you think that Renee is doing something good, bad, or um, just neutral? I think she... I don't, I think she's gonna take the money. Do you think that Renee and Marcy are likely to be friends or not? Not really. And what do you think about Marcy's parents? Do you think they'd be comfortable with her being friends with Renee or not? Um. Well, if they find out the situation that happened, they might be a little concerned about if Renee's a thief. Mm -hmm. And this one we have Erica and Allison, and they're also in the hallway at school. Can you tell me what it seems is happening in this picture? Allison looks like a sweet girl. Mm -hmm. So I think that she would pick up Erica's money and give it back to her. Okay, so then do you think Allison's doing something good, bad, or neutral? Um, pretty good. And what about Allison and Erica? Do you think they're probably friends or not so much? Yeah, they're probably friends. Okay. Do you think Erica's parents would like it if she was friends with Allison? Yeah. Her responses, according to our expert, Dr. Melanie Killen, could indicate a subconscious racial bias, a bias that kids develop from messages they hear at school, at home, the characters in the TV shows they watch, and what they see online. And Michaela's reversing the scenarios based on race wasn't unique. 24%, almost a quarter of all children, both white and African-American, saw their own race more positively than the other race. And this happened across all ages and all school types, no matter the racial demographics. What do you think happened in this picture? Um, they got busted. And what do you think is gonna happen next? Brennan's gonna hook up on this. 
So do you think that Randy's doing something that's okay, not okay, or kind of in the middle? Not okay. Not okay? Is Andre doing something good, bad, or just okay? Good. Michaela's answers were very much in line with her. Michaela's parents, Jim and Jennifer, agreed to watch their daughter's test and talk about her responses. Well, if they find out the situation that happened, they might be a little concerned about if Renee's a thief. Mm -hmm. Allison looks like a sweet girl. <laughs> so I think that she would pick up Erica's money and give it back to her. When you see that, what goes through your mind? Is there a conversation you want to have with her? Is there stuff you want to know more about? I, I would definitely want to pursue that conversation with her and find out why her perception was different based upon the color of the of the girl's skin. What changed in that scenario in her head? It's a teachable moment. It's a, you know, it's a realization like, well, maybe we have to do, you know, a, a better job or uh, focus more on um, distinguishing like uh, about racism and, and, you know, diversity and just um, influence our kids and, and let them know that you have to judge a person by their character. Not their skin color. And it's this possible subconscious racial bias versus explicit bias, actually consciously thinking and verbalizing racism, that our expert says shows how far we need to go, but also how far we've come. Explicit racism and prejudice has diminished dramatically over 50 years, but what remains is more the implicit, the implicit biases and uh, the implicit forms of racism and prejudice. And those are the things that we're not aware of, the things that we do when we don't realize it, because it seems that it's these implicit biases that are still what we really have to work on. So an example um, that has to do with adults and um, a little bit closer to, to the legal community that we interact with on a daily basis, this exercise is detailed in um, the Blind Spot book, but it talks about a, a memo review exercise where 60 partners at 22 different law firms agreed to take part in a writing analysis, 23 women, 37 men, 21 minorities and 39 um, participants were white. So in all, 53 partners ended up completing the exercise. 29 of those partners received a memo written by a white man named Thomas Mayer. 24 of the partners received an identical memo that was written by a black man named Thomas Mayer. And the only difference was the race of the author. So the results were pretty astonishing, I, I think. Uh, the reviewers gave the memo written by the uh, allegedly white man 4.1 out of 5. Um, they found less than half of his spelling and grammar errors, fewer technical writing and factual errors than were found in the memo written by the black Thomas Mayer, and they praised the author for his good analytical skills. The reviewers um, who reviewed the memo written by the black Thomas Mayer uh, gave him 3.2 out of five, so nearly a, a full point lower, found almost six out of seven, so nearly all of the spelling and grammar errors, was criticized as average at best and needing a lot of work. So these were identical memos. Um, I would imagine that none of the 53 partners who completed the exercise 
would say that they were overtly racist or, or harder on black authors than, than white authors, but the numbers um, proved themselves out. And so this is most likely a, a benefit of implicit bias. And this is a reason, and we'll talk about this a little more further, that blinding is a very common tactic to to address implicit bias where you don't get to know the race why employers are asking people not to submit photographs with their um resumes and and cover letters so that you can take that out of the equation as much as possible so implicit bias is largely um caused by stereotypes and stereotypes are things that occur in our society. Um, as the authors say, they don't take any special effort to acquire, um, but they do take special effort to discount. Uh, and one of the quotes that I, I really liked here was, uh, if we were to think of our minds as courtrooms in which trials are held to decide on guilt and innocence, one of the downsides of stereotypes is that they compromise due process. By relying on them, our minds indict before a prosecutor arrives on the scene. So as judges, we know that's not okay, right? Everyone is proven or is assumed to be innocent and, and they have to be proven guilty. We can't in, indict them before we get any evidence. And our stereotypes and our implicit biases are the things that um, cause us to, to answer that question. If you had to decide right here, right now, before the prosecutors put on a case, if, if my client was guilty or not guilty, what would you decide? I'm sure many of you have heard that in jury selection. And obviously the answer has to be not guilty. It can't be, we don't know yet. It can't be guilty. There has been no evidence and the defendant is presumed innocent. So for that reason, if no evidence is presented, you have to find the defendant not guilty. That's not what our brains always do, and, and that's what we're here to talk about today. This quote um, I like especially because I am known for taking an incredibly long time to, to make my judicial decisions, so this makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I fear the judge who is too sure of himself, who reaches his decision quickly, jumping immediately to conclusions without deliberation or repentance. So this is a very old uh, quote. It was translated in, in 1942, um, but significantly older than that. And obviously there's, there's some gendering going on there, but, but I think it's, it's relevant here to our discussion because one of the ways you can combat your implicit biases is to slow down your decision-making process. When we go with our gut, we are more likely to rely on our implicit biases Whereas if we do a more careful analysis, um, that is less likely to happen. So that's what I was trying to, to focus your attention on here. So how do we know what hidden biases we have that might be impacting our decision-making processes? One um, instrument for determining implicit bias is called the implicit association test. And it measures the strength of associations between concepts and evaluations or stereotypes. It's a sorting exercise, essentially. Um, like I said, you can do the tests uh, if you read that book. Um, additionally, you can go to the website, and I do have the web address later in the presentation, and do them directly from the Project Implicit website. And I do have a video here that demonstrates a little bit of how the tests work. 
possibly. Oh, there we go. Our problem is that the American dilemma isn't so simple. We have all of these markers by which we can demonstrate that we're not the people we used to be. But we don't know the ways in which we're not such good people because that part is unconscious. You may think this about yourself, but is that really who you are? We actually created a test that measures bias. You see words that capture good and bad. You have to associate Yankees with good and Red Sox with bad. This is very easy for a Yankee fan. But when you tell them to associate Yankee with bad and Red Sox with good, that's an impossible for them to do. They can't do it. They'll make mistakes. They'll take a lot longer to do it and so on. Take a test like this and now just replace Red Sox and Yankees with the groups black and white. Imagine that for half the trials on this test, you have to associate black with good whenever you see a black face or a word like love, peace, joy, friend, all these good things. And while you're doing that, you have to put white and bad together and words that mean terrible things in the world. Words like agony, devil, bomb, vomit. How hard is that for you to do is the question. We're not talking about your conscious attitudes. We're not talking about your conscious beliefs. We're talking about something that you yourself may not necessarily know you have. For something like 75% of white Americans, it's very hard to put black and good together. So <clears throat> I should also mention implicit bias is not just a, a race question. Um, you can have implicit biases against older people, younger people, overweight people, um, gender, different genders, different gender identifications, all, all sorts of things. And anything pretty much that you can categorize, you can uh, have an implicit bias for or against. Um, so race is obviously an easy example and one that is kind of at the forefront of all of our minds right now. Um, but there are lots and lots of different tests that you can do to discover any implicit biases you may have for or against different categories of people. Um, the IAT results definitely can be disturbing for some people. A lot of people don't agree with what their IATs show. Um, you can tell that maybe there were some lawyers involved with the drafting of the website because the Project Implicit website makes you click through multiple disclaimers. Um, if you are unprepared to encounter interpretations that you might find objectionable, do not proceed. I am aware of the possibility of encountering interpretations of my IAP performance with which I may not agree. Knowing this, I, I still wish to proceed. So they're prepping you there for the fact that um, you may be surprised by your own results and 
I have an example here from Malcolm Gladwell. He is an author. Um, he wrote for The New Yorker. He has a number of published books. And uh, he was in, doing an interview with Oprah about him taking the race IAT. And he said when he took it for the first time, it showed him that he had a moderate preference for white people. And he said, what that said was I was biased slightly against black people and toward white people. And he was horrified by that because his mother is Jamaican. And he said, the person in my life who I love more than almost anyone else is black. And here I was taking a test which said, frankly, I wasn't too crazy about black people. So I did what anyone else was do and I took it again. You know, maybe it was an error. Same result again same result and he says it was this creepy dispiriting devastating moment and you know it, it doesn't have to be that way because uh, as we've talked about here implicit biases aren't aren't things that we are acquiring on purpose um but bringing awareness to them is going to um help us as judges to to improve our decision making processes uh, I thought this was a really interesting example of hidden bias and, and combating hidden bias, uh, mostly because that was not what it was designed to do. So back in 1970, fewer than 10% of instrumentalists in America's major symphony orchestras were women, and women made up less than 20% of new hires. But that was not the concern that gave rise to this experiment. Um, the concern was that people who were auditioning who were known to be students of certain teachers were getting preference. So in order to try to put a stop to that preference, the American Symphony Orchestras adopted a blind audition procedure. So the auditions were performed behind a sheet or a curtain and the result of that was the proportion of women hired by major symphony orchestras doubled from 20% to 40%. I don't know what impact it had on the students of those renowned teachers, but it definitely had an impact on the number of women who were hired. So just another example about how that blinding can take implicit bias out of the equation or, or perhaps explicit bias as well. Um, it, it would combat both. So it certainly had an impact in this example. And stereotypes and implicit bias really come back to what is called an in-group bias. And um, there's a lot of research out there um, on the internet about in-group preferences. Uh, so I, I have a little bit of that here, but if it's something that you're interested in, there are lots of additional resources out there. But basically, you know, people spent thousands of years in close-knit communities com competing for scarce resources. And obviously that still happens today, although on a different level than before the industrialized nation came forward. So members of your in-group were presumably sources of help, comfort, and cooperation, whereas members of opposing groups were sources of threat and violence. They wanted your resources and they were willing to, to steal them by any means necessary to support their own group. And it was a, a survival of the fittest mentality. So um, as a result of that, 
people have a tendency to instinctively treat in-group members with care and foreigners with caution. And it's something that really is basically etched in our DNA. It's something that we evolved with as human beings. And I have a little video clip here that will illustrate that for you. Have you ever wondered how you make decisions? Most of us would like to think that we weigh alternatives and arrive at well thought out conclusions. But every day we make countless decisions without even realizing it. Every moment we're inundated with around 11 million bits of information. And yet research suggests that our conscious brain only handles something like 40 bits of information a second. This means our minds are constantly processing information, and for the most part, without our conscious awareness. Our brains evolved this way to ensure survival. This automatic thinking acts as a danger deter, determining if something or someone is safe. Where people are concerned, these decisions are hardwired into us. We respond positively to people we perceive to be like us, and react against people who to be too different which was okay in life or death situations, but not so great in the workplace. Sometimes these mental shortcuts can lead us astray, especially when they cause us to misjudge people. When you see anyone, whether we think about it or not, we are automatically making judgments about them. The subtle assumptions we make about people can have lasting effects on who we're promoting, who we're hiring, and who we're putting into leadership positions. It's important to recognize that everyone has these biases. Think of it as a human brain software glitch. Of course, it seems unfair to choose a CEO because of height, hire someone because of their sex, or give lower performance scores to people who are overweight. And yet all of these things continuously happen without us even realizing we're doing it. The good news is, despite the complex nature of the problem, mitigating the impact of unconscious bias is a relatively simple matter of raising awareness and developing a more mindful approach at key decision-making times. Just as you'd avoid a dangerous blind spot when driving, we want you to become aware of your own unconscious blind spots. In doing so, you'll recognize the effects they can have on others, and you can take steps to combat unconscious bias in your workplace. So that video uh, obviously focuses a little bit on a human resources perspective, which um, could well be relevant to some of us uh, who are in administrative roles, but it is equally applicable, if not more applicable to the decisions that we're making as judges. You know, we're not just deciding who we're going to promote or who we're going to hire, we're deciding who's going to jail, who's gonna have a criminal conviction on their record um, who's going to be evicted from their home. These are, are definitely life-altering decisions that we are making. And um, I, I'll speak for myself and that I, I certainly want to make sure that I'm making those decisions based on, on the facts and the evidence and not based on some implicit bias or association that I may have about one of the parties that's appearing in front of me. Another example of in-group bias is a study of infants. So in this study, American and French infants who were not even quite 10 months old were offered two equally attractive toys. 
one from an adult speaking English and the other from an adult speaking French. And uh, the research showed that American babies reached more often for the toy offered by the English speaker, while French babies uh, showed a preference for the French speaker. Um, not all that surprising, but it, it really just goes to show that we have this preference for things that are familiar to us, and that starts from a very, very young age. Now, interestingly, some research has been done as well um, on children and whether they tend to have the same implicit biases as their parents. And one thing that I found interesting from that research is it does depend on the quality of the relationship between the parent and the child. So if the parent and child have a negative relationship um, and a negative association, the child has a negative association with their parent, it's less likely that they'll carry over the same implicit biases that their parents have. Whereas if they see their parents positively, it's more likely that they will show those same implicit biases. Another example of in-group bias that is interesting, uh, this is an example where a young university professor had injured herself. So she was a quilter and um, quilting involves very sharp shears and she had cut her hand um, very significantly. Her boyfriend took her to the emergency room and uh, she was seen by a doctor and the doctor said, all right, I'll go ahead and stitch you up. And Carla's boyfriend had told the doctor, you know, it's very important that she be, you know, repaired <laughs> as best possible so that she can continue quilting. That was her, her kind of outlet in her uh, academic life. And the doctor was like, yep, absolutely, I'll take care of it. And then as they were about to start stitching up her hand, a resident recognized her and referred to her as professor. And the doctor stopped what he was doing and he went ahead and um, had a hand surgeon come in and repair her hand. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because he obviously meant no ill will towards Carla when he offered to stitch up her hand himself. He was probably perfectly capable of doing so. He was an emergency room attending doctor, but once he realized that she was a member of, of his in-group, essentially, he gave her preferential treatment. He got her more and better care than she would have received as, as just a regular patient. So it kind of goes to show a little bit what acts of omission versus acts of commission, how these things can influence um, the way people are treated. So what does this mean for us as far as legal decision-making goes? It's interesting because you would think that juror bias against people who are outside their racial group would be greater when a case is centered around race. However, there have been numerous studies done that show that the opposite is actually the case. So when a case is racially charged, jurors who typically want to be fair and, and do their job well, those jurors are more likely to 
be thoughtful about race and question their own assumptions and not show bias in their deliberations. Whereas by contrast, if, if race is not a highly relevant part of the case, then the jurors are more likely to rely on their implicit biases and not focus on the topic of race and not try as hard to make sure that they're being fair as it pertains to race. There was another experiment that illustrated this point. Um, I thought that this was an interesting one. So participants viewed a slideshow of photos from a crime scene and an image that displayed security camera footage of the defendant. Half of the participants saw a dark-skinned perpetrator in the photo, whereas the other half saw a light-skinned version of the same image. So many participants could not recall the race of the defendant, but participants who viewed the dark-skinned version were more convinced of the defendant's guilt and considered ambiguous evidence more supportive of their guilty verdict than participants who saw light-skinned defendants. And interestingly, the participants' IAP scores had predicted their verdicts and evidence ratings. So people who had a white preference on their IAP were more likely to be thinking that the, the white person was not guilty, whereas people who had a, a um, how should I say it, a, a white preference were convinced of the, the darker skinned defendant's guilt and, and thought that the evidence supported their verdict. So um, I, I thought that that was relevant because it kind of brings the IAT into the real world. A lot of people think that, well, how does this comparison test go back to actual decision-making? Is it really relevant to actual decision-making? And here the IAT scores were predictive of the verdicts and the evidence ratings. So as judges, what can we do about this? How can we prevent implicit bias from being a main decision-making point uh, in our jury trials versus bringing awareness to it and, and making sure that jurors are, are truly weighing the facts of the case and, and applying the evidence and the law that we give them? There is a judge who plays this video during jury selection to kind of bring, bring the topic of implicit bias to, to the front of mind. And I had a little bit of an issue playing this one, so we'll see what happens here. I might have to do a workaround. All right, give me just a sec here. Sorry about that. Technology, right? Can't live with it. Can't live without it. Are you just gonna try to play the video directly? Yeah, I was going to try to go to your Hightail and click, click the link from there, which I think I'll be able to do. Share that. 
let me know if this works. Are you all able to see the video that's loading? Yes. Okay, perfect. You see this and you wonder, did he lose his keys or is he blatantly stealing that bike? In broad daylight, he hammered and then saws on the chain. When that doesn't work, he pulls out an industrial-sized bolt cut. And when he's asked, passes up. Lost the lock? Uh, no, not exactly. But he's not a real thief. Justin Kelly is an actor, and our hidden cameras are rolling. What happened? Um, nothing. I just I can't get through the lock. I mean. I know it's weird, but you wouldn't happen to know whose bike this is. Yeah. Right, it was odd that somebody had all that all that equipment, but you didn't do anything. No. That's true. That's the bottom line. Lots of people stop and stare. A few even to the actor. Doesn't have to ask. Is that your bike? I guess technically no. <laughs> Okay. Bye. Bye. Over an hour, about a hundred people passed by. Only George and Arlene tried to stop it. Some tell us they plan to call the police later. Others say they're scared. Keep moving. This woman and her friends give our thief the benefit of the doubt. When we ask why, Lisa Washington tells us first impressions matter. I've been thinking. Young white men don't usually carry burglary tools. So we all make assumptions, huh? I'm thinking maybe he works for the park. We replace our white thief with this young man, Madlock. Remember, both actors dress in a similar way and are about the same age. Is that your bike? Uh, nah. Then what do you cut the chain for? Right away. Uh, right away, somebody else. Well, within seconds, another person confronts our thief. Is that your bike? Technically, is not, but it's gonna be mine. More people convert. Are you taking oh. that? Is that your bike? Uh, no, it's not, sir. Oh, why are you, you doing that? Is this for me? Is this any of our bikes? Is this your bike? No, it's your bike. It belongs to someone. To who? Well, but not to you. And sure enough, one man whips out a cell phone to call 911. Our actor triggers more reactions. Some people are even snapping pictures for evidence. Once everyone moves away, we reset our cameras, and within minutes, another outraged man is yelling. Are you still trying to steal that bike? Excuse me, sir, but the bike's been here for, for, for days. Like, no one's going to take it. Well, that's not your bike, then. Yeah, you can't just come in and take something from somebody. Excuse me, sir. I'm not okay, I'll just take your tools right now. You sure, sir? Please, sir, please, sir, please, sir, don't touch my stuff, sir. Please, sir, do not touch my well, stuff. Please. Yeah, I, yeah, all right, but this, is, but this has been here. Like, who's going to take it? Well, that doesn't make it your property. Technically, it does. No, it doesn't, technically. <laughs> It's not yours. Okay. All right, when we bring out our cameras, David Robb wants us to go after the thief. That kid in the red shirt. He's hacking away the bike. He's not in. And he has the right to take it to steal it. And he's coming to 
She may not look like your average Viking, but actress Ashley Carpenter makes sure anyone who asks knows she's up to no good. You don't know who's up there, do With a little help from Ed Fitzsimmons, the bike chain easily falls away. Oh my goodness, what a strong man you are. And he isn't the only man who stops in his tracks. What's this guy thinking? You know, you pull up, you don't know if she lost her key, if she's trying to actually take the bike, but then again, she's the girl. And we so never see a girl doing, doing that. Still? You never know. Most of the time, it's the guy going to do something like that. Reginald pedals right past his appalled wife, straight to our actress, asking her if she needs a hand. Uh, okay, I'll eventually get it. I did some time roller. I So um, I, I think that video is, it's humorous, but it, it kind of in a, in a sad way when you, when you think about it and, and all the, the stereotypes and things that are included in it. I might have better luck keeping my jurors awake if I <laughs> played amusing videos like that for them. But I do think that, that it brings up an interesting point as far as priming our jurors for issues like implicit bias and how they can impact deliberations. Our Arizona um, revised jury instructions do talk about bias a bit. So um, the Rajis themselves look at motive, bias, prejudice uh, of witnesses. It is a good place to uh, perhaps remind jurors that implicit bias exists and both witnesses and they themselves could could suffer from that and it's something that they need to consider in their deliberations. So what about us? What about judges? Um, implicit bias is shown as being most influential doing, during stressful situations that are cognitively demanding, emotionally draining, and rife with uncertainty. Um, I don't know about you, but I think that could certainly apply to some of my days on the bench. Um, so it's problematic because we are often making decisions under these circumstances. You know, we're in a time crunch. We have to, we feel like we have to make a decision right at that point. Um, mentally, we're tired, we're working hard, we're hearing a lot of cases and, and we don't know. It's, it's our job to judge who's telling the truth, who's right, who's wrong. And, and those are difficult decisions to make and, and those circumstances kind of prey on our implicit biases. So these can influence us, these, these implicit bias can, biases can influence us um, both as fact finders and in sentencing decisions. There's an example from a study back in 2004 um, in the Florida prison population. So within white and black subgroups there of people convicted criminals in, in prison in Florida, Convicts with stronger Afrocentric facial features received longer sentences than inmates with comparable criminal records who had less distinctly Afrocentric features. 
So scholars overall were, were fairly unsurprised by these findings because decisions to incarcerate and sentence people involve calculations of dangerousness and implicit associations between black men and violent crime are, are shown time and time again and are, are likely holding substantial weight in judges' analyses. So it's just an, an example, a real world example of how implicit biases uh, against black men and, and feeling that they are dangerous has likely had some impact on, on the sentences of this population of inmates in Florida, especially given that they had comparable criminal records. Another issue is that most judges view themselves as objective and especially talented at fair decision making. So uh, there was a study of judges where a survey was done and 97% of judges attending a conference, 35 out of the 36 judges, believed that they were in the top 25% in avoiding racial prejudice and decision making. So 97% of them thought they were in the top 25%. Uh, obviously, this is mathematically impossible. And it is especially problematic because when people believe they are objective, they are more likely to act on their biases. If you think, oh, I'm fair and objective, then I don't need to do work to overcome any biases I might have. And what ends up happening is that you rely on those biases in your decision-making process. So what do we do? How do we combat that? We must realize that, that we are human, we are fallible, we have biases that we don't necessarily know of unless we make the effort to uncover them. So we have to be consciously motivated to be fair and put those biases aside. Do the work to find out where your biases are and make sure that you are considering those and making sure that you're weighing the facts and evidence um, for what they are and not re relying on stereotypes or knee-jerk reactions. We have to engage in effortful deliberative processes and that is what is gonna help defeat the impact of implicit bias on our judicial decision-making. So this is a very interesting experiment. Um, this is something that is becoming more popular, which is the use of virtual reality and um, applying virtual reality to try to combat implicit bias. So in this study, uh, light-skinned participants entered an immersive virtual environment. So they possessed an avatar's physical body and using motion tracking equipment, they saw their own selves um, as the avatar moving um, in a mirror. And they had, um, so the light-skinned participants were in a dark-skinned avatar. And the study organizer analyzed the IAT scores before and after the virtual reality experience, and the authors discovered decreased implicit biases among participants who embodied dark-skinned avatars. Um, so there was another study with uh, similar results after embodying a black avatar during a Tai Chi lesson. Participants demonstrated reduced IAT scores when they took the test even a week after the virtual reality experience. 
So it, it basically is kind of serving to, to undermine the in-group bias. Um, you're, you're putting yourself in the position of a different group and that can have an impact on your implicit associations and then in turn your implicit biases. It can weaken those implicit biases and um, help you to make more fair decisions. So it will be interesting to see how this continues on. There was another study done in 2018 that was similar and an article published, um, I believe earlier this year, um, that also touched on virtual reality and the use of it um, in courtrooms type simulations. So what can we do personally? Um, we really need to expose ourselves to counter stereotypic examples and role models. There's been a lot of talk in the literature lately about courthouses where, you know, there are pictures of, of founding people. I mean, I will say in my own courtroom or courthouse, I should say, we have pictures of all the judges who served before me out in the lobby and they're all, you know, white men over 50, maybe over 60. Um, so that is not a counter stereotypic example. That is a stereotypic example of, of people who serve as judges and it reinforces those beliefs by exposing ourselves to counter stereotypic examples. Uh, we are opening up our minds basically to the fact that yes, people who look X way do succeed in Y profession or or things like that and, and we show that success doesn't always look one way or you know lawyers aren't always white men you know just things like that and, and exposing both ourselves and even the people who come into our courthouses to different role models than the ones that are, are so often seen um, media exposures uh, are very persuasive as well um, which is a good thing and a bad thing because our media has has certainly um, laid the groundwork for a lot of the implicit biases that exist. But one interesting example is something like the AARP. They have a magazine that comes out regularly and they have been putting very active um, people doing healthy activities, cycling, hiking, things like that on the cover of their magazine to try to decrease the old infirm associations with people over the age of 60, 65. Um, there's hope that the success of, of black people like Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama um, have occupied enough media space to contribute to alterations of both of black stereotypes, both black stereotypes by non-black people and also um, black stereotypes of their own biases. There's a lot of self-defeating bias out there. So black people don't necessarily have a pro-black IAT result. Um, women, I can't remember if I have this example in this presentation or a different one that I do, I don't. So there was a study done of college age females, college age women in math class. And college-age women in math class with female professors were more likely to see themselves as good at math than the same age group population of female students in, uh, with male professors. So the, we all 
well, many, many populations do have self-defeating implicit biases as well. So another underutilized strategy uh, is one that we've talked about quite a bit actually through this presentation, which is using the no-brainer solution. So blinding, things like that, taking opportunities where hidden bias could be applied and removing that from the equation. So I would highly encourage you to go to the Project Implicit website, take the IAT tests, learn a little bit about yourself um, and what implicit biases you may have, and, and talk to your friends about it, talk to other people about it. Just bringing, it, bringing awareness to it is going to be the biggest way to, to start to eradicate this or at least diminish it so that decision-making, not just by judges, but by people you know, across the world is decisions are made on their merits and not from relying on implicit biases that we do not realize that we are relying on. The legal profession um, has, has worked on this at, at points. Um, former Deputy Director or Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates implemented a mandatory implicit bias training for all law enforcement, for federal law enforcement agents and prosecutors. It is certainly something that, that is on the forefront right now. And um, the more training that we can put out there, the more information we can put out there, I think the better off we'll be as far as our decision-making processes. Conscious acknowledgement of group and individual differences is also something that's important. If you say, you know, I'm colorblind, I don't see color, then you're not really diminishing your in-group bias. You need to expose yourself to different people, people that aren't necessarily in your in-group in order to kind of bring those people into your in-group and, and diminish that in-group bias. Um, identifying sources of stress and reducing them in the decision-making environment I think is incredibly important for us as judges. Um, it's okay to take a recess, to take a case under advisement not make a decision on the fly so that you can really make sure that you are considering the facts and evidence and making a thoughtful and well-reasoned decision. I have a video here from the Royal Society. And then Charles, if you are there, my battery is dying. So I'm thinking if you are able to play from Hightail, the ABA video, I will go dock my laptop and log off and log back on. So after this video, let me know if you can do that for me. Okay. Thanks. The unconscious mind is amazing. It can process vastly more information than our conscious mind by using shortcuts based on our background, cultural environment, and personal experiences to make almost instantaneous decisions about everything around us. The snag is, it's wrong quite a lot of the time, especially on matters that need rational thinking. Here's a classic example. A bat and a ball cost one pound, 10 pence. If the bat costs one pound more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? 
most people, including over 50% of students at some of the world's leading universities, get the answer wrong and say 10 pence. The answer is actually 5 pence. Many of us choose 10 pence without thinking. This is because our unconscious mind uses instinct, not analysis. So our unconscious is fallible. It's also biased. It makes snap judgments of people we meet, categorizing them according to gender, social and other characteristics. In milliseconds, we judge whether somebody is like and belongs to our in-group. These are the people we favor. So men might favor men, while women might favor women. However, we can belong to different in-groups, and we like to be part of an in-group that's powerful, which could mean a woman favoring a man over a woman. That's unconscious bias. All of us have it, and it colors our decisions without our realizing. For example, research reveals that if I were a man, you would be more likely to be nodding in agreement right now because people pay more attention to a male voice. The Royal Society fosters excellence in science, but this can only be achieved if we select from the widest range of talent. And that's not possible if unconscious bias is narrowing down the field for non-scientific reasons. To lessen the impact of unconscious bias, which is easier for us to notice in others, we are raising the awareness of unconscious bias to members of our selection and appointment panels. We're encouraging panel members to deliberately slow down decision-making, reconsider reasons for decisions, question cultural stereotypes, and monitor each other for unconscious bias. We can't cure unconscious bias, but with self-awareness, we can address it. So while the Royal Society um, it has a different goal of what they are doing than what we are doing as judges, um, I, I think that their advice there at the end, as well as some of the things that they're touching on in the video, is, is highly relevant to how we can be better decision makers as judges. So I wanted to touch on that. We have a video um, from the ABA that uh, goes a little bit into the neuroscience of implicit bias. It, it's a bit long. I think it'll take us pretty much to the end of our time here today. Um, but Charles will go ahead and play that for you. And I will be here at the end um, if anyone has any questions. And you're also more than welcome to reach out to me by email as well. Thank you. And uh, if for some reason the volume is not working, please let me know. Sounds good. Good. Did we just lose volume? I think we Did have, we lose the volume? Yeah, we had okay. the volume and then we lost it. Okay, I'll, all right, I'll, I'll get it. Let the nation and our society 
during the most important civil rights struggles in our history. So if anyone were to suggest, even politely, that lawyers were as biased as anyone else, few in our profession would not instinctively take umbrage. Indeed, we fashion ourselves the very stewards of equality in our society, the leaders charged with eradicating discrimination. And yet, the latest neurological research shows that we, not only as a society, but as a profession, are not as colorblind as we would have hoped. That even our oath and work as lawyers does not make us less likely to be biased. Using the most advanced techniques of neuroscience, our colleagues in medicine and science have uncovered data that demonstrates that implicit bias exists in each of us. They have compiled compelling proof that each of us harbor preconceptions based on unconscious associations that have built up over time. This is the case regardless not only of one's level of education, but also of one's own desire to be colorblind. Those of us whose life work is committed to equal justice cannot deny the power of this evidence. The section of litigation of the American Bar Association this year has launched this important initiative to introduce the leaders of our justice system to the compelling, albeit unsettling, truths of our unconscious mind. This is not merely an academic exercise. The same science also demonstrates that if we openly consider and confront our biases, we can change them. And so this challenge, which you are taking today, is not only one to educate yourself about this issue, but to lead our system of justice and our society towards true equality. You can conceptualize mental processes as a big iceberg, and you can conceptualize the part of the iceberg that sits above uh, the waterline as being just the very, very tip, that's a small amount. And that very tip of the iceberg are the cognitive processes, the mental processes that we're aware of. And all the rest underneath the waterline is all the automatic processes that happen behind the scenes that help you to learn and to interact with your environment. And when we're talking about implicit attitudes, we're talking about things that, that you've learned through interacting with your environment that sit below the level of the surface. You may not even be aware of the attitudes that you have that have been built up over time based on your interactions with others. We like to think that we have full access to what's going on in our bodies and our brains, but the truth is that our brains are very, very complicated machines. Um, they do uh, lots of things, uh, lots of work, lots of perception, lots of recording, lots of memory, lots of recall, lots of cognitions that are completely um, underneath the level of conscious self-awareness. And given that fact, people may not be able to accurately report the cognitions that are going on in their heads. Our brains are in some ways like neural networks. How do we learn? We learn things all the time. Every second that we're alive, we're constantly being exposed to different kinds of images, experiences, sometimes with real people that you interact with, but more often with, uh, with vicarious experiences that are told to us through stories, through um, the media, through television, right? And by constant bombardment of these things uh, through personal experiences and everything that culture teaches us, it's as if our brain automatically picks up on the associations that we see. So even if we individually might not put white over black, even if we don't individually think that math should be more associated with men than women, it might turn out that our brains have picked up just those associations. Advances in technology have allowed scientists to peer inside the brain while it is thinking. 
The brain is an exceedingly complex set of systems and subsystems interacting with one another. If there are parts of the brain that neuroscientists have been able to isolate and study in order to understand how they function in the midst of the complexity. We're looking at an indicator of blood flow. And this tells us something about the neural activity going on in the brain um, in a continuous dynamic manner. And so we can use that now to look at how different parts of the brain show more neural activity um, when you're in kinds of tasks. These implicit um, attitudes or societal effects on our mind is like the, um, the operating system of a computer running in the background, where the conscious thoughts are the applications. It's like you know, word running in the foreground or internet running in the foreground, but in the background, there's stuff going on that we're usually not conscious of. The most popular instrument, uh, the one that's uh, best known and has been most widely studied is something called the Implicit Association Test created by uh, Tony Greenwald. It's a test that measures association strengths. Now that doesn't sound like it's of great importance, but it turns out that association strengths are at the heart of attitudes and stereotypes. And as we've done research using the IAT, it's turned out that it's revealed things that we didn't know because it measures these associations that people are not even aware that they have. The IAT has been taken by over 2.5 million people online. Here's how the race IAT works. Two categories appear on either side of the screen, like good, bad, African-American, Caucasian. Then a picture or a word appears in the center of the screen. You must match the picture or word in the center with the proper category. For half of the test, you may be instructed to match African-American faces with good and Caucasian faces with bad. For the second half of the test, the matching instructions will switch and you will be asked to match the faces with the other category. The test records how quickly you pair those two categories and concepts and how many mistakes you make. You set the pace and the computer compares your speed and accuracy of pairing in part one and part two of the test. If you make more mistakes or take longer to sort one race with good, then psychologists interpret this to mean that you have an implicit bias against that group. A lot of the IAT results that we observe are shared widely in the population. So we have an IAT that associates women more with family, men more with career. Every group we look at shows that. You might think women don't show it as much as men. Actually, they show it slightly more. For me, the, the IAT was kind of a, um, and I think other people have described this to me, sort of an aha moment. I've been very active in the civil rights movement before I became a judge um, of I've always been very interested in issues of racial equality. Um, and I think I scored as having a, a moderate, at least a moderate level of uh, implicit bias. And, um, and so I, I, I was initially quite defensive about it and tried to explain it away in terms of the technology that was involved and you know, the context in which I took it, et cetera. Um, but it did, you know, but as I reflected on it, it did begin to um, make more and more sense to me um, in terms of explaining some of my own ambiguous feelings about the role that race played in, in my life. I had the great desire to show an association of black with good because I know that in the world out there, 
there are large numbers of people who don't have it. So I didn't just want to be equal. I wanted to show a black good association to be present in order to compensate for what I know actually happens in the world. Not only did I not show that, I didn't even show equality. It was impossible for my fingers, basically driven by what my brain was doing, to make the association of black with good as quickly as I could make it for white and good. And I'm not black and I'm not white. I'm the neutral, perfect, third-person observer. I should have been able to do this. Not all biases are the same. The neuroscientists and psychologists have extended their studies beyond the realm of race bias to discuss how we think about in-group and out-group members. The categorization of people into groups, it becomes all important to you because you have to categorize people not only in terms of understanding the world, right? Because we can't take everything as an individual. We have to simplify it. But we lay on top of that the in-group and the out-group distinction. So not only do we distinguish people as fitting into groups, we, we very importantly talk about groups that we belong to, the in-group, and groups we don't belong to, the out-group. A study led by professors Jason Mitchell, C. Neil McRae, and Mazarin Banaji at Harvard looked at how we think about people who are similar and dissimilar to us by studying people who self-identified as particularly liberal. And we showed them pictures of two people, uh, John and Matthew. John was a liberal, supposedly like them. Matthew, in other ways, was just like them, also another student, a member in that sense of that, that age group, but happened to be from the Midwest and was a Republican and a fundamentalist Christian to boot. And we showed them very simple behaviors, questions about these, about these two people. John, do you think he'll go home for Thanksgiving? Matthew, do you think he does his laundry every week? Just simple questions that have nothing to do with the person's politics. And what we discovered was that when they're making these judgments of these two people, they have no conscious experience that they're treating them in any way differently. It is well-settled neuroscience that a part of the brain called the amygdala activates when threat or anxiety is increased, or when we find someone to be untrustworthy. We primed people with uh, either black male faces or white male faces, or stereotypically black male names or white male names. And then we played movies for them that went from all snowed out so you can't see what was there and got progressively clearer. And we did this in 40, uh, 41 steps. Uh, so at, at step one or frame one, it's completely blurry or it has a lot of snow. And then we exposed the participants to frame after frame and each frame gets a little more clear, a little more clear, a little more clear. And your only job is to stop the movie when you know what you've seen. If they were exposed to black faces beforehand, they could tell us at an earlier frame, at a frame where you have less information or more snow in the picture, that that was a gun or that was a knife or those were handcuffs. But for the crime irrelevant objects, like the teacups, it didn't matter whether they were being primed with black or white beforehand. So what people really want now is evidence that these implicit biases, measured by these crazy scientific instruments, actually predict real world behavior. Because if it doesn't predict what actually happens uh, in the real world, then it sounds kind of academic. It might be interesting for scientists. I don't know why it should be that interesting for uh, lawyers, policymakers, judges, uh, folks out in the real world. I drew together the results of 120, 130 studies that had been done over the past 10 years, and quite a few of them involved race measures and found that 
the race IAT was predicting discriminatory behavior. There are lots of now studies showing that in the case of race, in the case of gender, in the case of age, uh, sexual orientation, all of these different kinds of social groups, the more people prefer the socially dominant group uh, over the, the, the less dominant, less advantaged group, the more bias they show in terms of uh, all kinds of outcomes. A phenomenon called shooter bias has been researched. To examine this phenomenon, scientists created a computerized test. The rule is, if you see a gun, shoot. If you see something else, like a Coke can, a wallet, a cell phone, don't shoot. And you just play it on a computer. The people who are in the pictures of the computer are either white men or black men. They're in different positions in photorealistic settings, and they draw a gun or they have a Coke can. And your goal is to, as soon as you see the picture, shoot or holster your gun. It turns out we shoot um, black men faster with guns and we make more errors um, with black men and we'll shoot them more even if they're not carrying guns, especially if there's time pressure. The amygdala seemed to be important for encoding how much people favored their in-group. We were also able to look at neural measures that related to out-group bias, having negative attitudes towards people who are different than you are, in addition to those control things uh, control processes like trying to inhibit the expression of some of these biased attitudes. In a study out of Yale, scholars examined fear conditioning learning. Now what we know from, from years and years and years of research in non-humans that the amygdala, which is a small structure about the size of your thumb tip um, in the middle of your brain, um, is critical for the acquisition, storage, and expression of that kind of learning. And in this study, what we did was we um, took people, Yale undergraduates, and they were all white, and we put them in the MRI scanner, and we just showed them pictures of black and white male faces. And during the scanning part of the study, we, um, we didn't ask them anything about race. We simply asked them to press a button if a face was repeated, um, and another button if it wasn't repeated. So at that point, they weren't really aware that it was, a study that had anything to do with race. After the scanning session, we gave them a number of um, behavioral tasks that would measure different measures of race bias. Um, we gave them explicit measures, most notably the uh, modern racism scale, where you essentially have to, on a questionnaire, tell us what are your attitudes. And then we gave them two implicit measures, the implicit association test um, and one physiological measure called eye blink startle. The researchers found some increase in amygdala activation when the subject saw the face of the African-American man while in the scanner. But the most profound finding in the study was the relationship between the results of the fMRIs and the IET scores. So the primary result that we found was that the amount of amygdala activation you showed when you're looking at the black versus the white faces in our white American subjects was correlated with the amount of bias they showed as measured by the IET. The thing about the amygdala, you know, we're talking about in the context of race bias, but the reason why we're talking about it in that context is literature about the amygdala, both in emotional learning and in social processing. Um, and other studies looking at the role of the amygdala in social processing shows, for instance, it seems to be play a role in evaluations of trust. Um, patients with damage to the amygdala tend to rate people as more trustworthy overall. Um, 
the amount of amygdala activation you see correlates with ratings of trustworthiness. So the more untrustworthy someone appears to you, the higher the amygdala response. So it seems to be involved in social evaluations of trust. To the extent that rationalization can allow racism to exist without us recognizing it or acknowledging it or combating it, uh, people who are more clever, um, who can see things in a more complex way, who can make associations that are usually weaker but still see those associations, can be very effective and probably more effective than other people in terms of coming up with rationalization. So it turns out that we all suffer from something called the above average effect. Uh, in one study done by Jeff Raklinski, um, he asked uh, a bunch of judges, uh, 36 of them, whether you are in the top half of those judges who can avoid prejudiced decision-making. Guess how many people thought they were in the top half? 97% of all judges asked thought they were in the top half. It is natural, I think, for people who have reached the level of being a judge, reached the level of, of, of integrity and learning that warrants their becoming a judge. It's, it's not so easy to convince that person that, that unconscious biases may still be operating at levels that you are unaware of. People who are very articulate at arguing different points of view um, would be more likely to come up with effective rationalizations that will convince themselves that they're not racist. You may actually be much more likely uh, because it's the nature of your job that demands that you come up with cogent arguments for why you're doing X versus Y. You know, why did you say that this man who lost his arm deserves 50,000 and this man deserves 5 million? And so intelligence doesn't automatically protect you um, from being racist. And in fact, it could have the opposite effect if you use that intelligence in a way that will, will justify your biases. The point is that we all think that we are exceptional, that we are the ones that are immune from bias, whereas everyone else is. And it's completely human for us to think that way. And given that, we have to check ourselves from the biases that we will predictably suffer from. Now, whether it is judges or police officers or teachers or CEOs, the question is how fast will they get onto the data that we now have that I think are telling us something just as fundamental as that the earth is not at the center of the universe. We're not the good people we think we are. And the data are telling us that if we want our laws and our policies to be in line with what we know to be human nature, rather than with our sense of what it ought to be, the better off we will be in the way in which we will treat people. This initiative of the ABA section of litigation asks you to consider the evidence you've just seen. With the knowledge, the confidence, and the commitment, that with the right training and reflection, we can all live up to the oath of our profession. Thank you, Charles, for taking care of that for me. Sorry, my lighting is not as good now, but I am still here. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate all of you attending our presentation today. Um, I hope that um, we you learned something or at least raised questions for you that you can consider.
uh, as you go about your judicial decision-making. If anyone has any questions or comments, you're welcome to pipe in. Otherwise, um, feel free to reach out to me individually as well. And I wish you all the best on the bench. All right, well, thank you so much. Uh, it doesn't look like we have any questions at this point, um, but if we do, we'll forward them to you. Uh, if you want COJET credit, please remember to turn your, uh, your COJET certificates in and have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much, Judge McDonald. Thank you, my pleasure.